all the clans together. Calling all the clans together. Calling all the clans together. Brothers come around. Calling south and north together. Calling west and east together. Calling all the clans together. Brother come running.
sexual molesters. Do we still honor them? Okay, we're halfway through now. How many of those commandments are codified into our law? None. Let's move on. Number six, thou shalt not kill. Now we are finally getting somewhere. Finally a rule that is not just to stroke the frail ego of the Bible God. Seven, thou shalt not commit adultery. This is a good piece of morality, but it is not part of our laws. Number eight, thou shalt not steal. No problem with this one. Number nine, thou shalt not bear false witness. There are no laws against lying unless you are under oath in court, so this one is not part of the law either. And finally, number ten, thou shalt not covet. Now this one is downright silly. Based on this, you should never want a nicer home, a new car, or any other consumer product. It is in direct conflict with a capitalist economy. No one follows this one, and it is not part of our laws. So how does the claim by Christians that their Ten Commandments are the foundation of our laws? I'm sorry, Christians, but your claim that the laws of this land are based on the Ten Commandments is totally without merit. And your misplaced pride in the Ten Commandments is puzzling. Not killing and not stealing are codified in the law of every civilized country on the planet, of which many are populated by folks of different religious beliefs and different holy books than the Bible. Is this the best that your omnipotent God could muster? Where is the, Thou shalt not own slaves? Thou shalt not destroy the earth. Thou shalt not abuse or molest children. Thou shalt not mistreat animals. It is evident that the Bible's Ten Commandments are of little to no value in regard to moral instruction. It is glaringly clear that the drive to post it in public buildings and schools is the crass promotion of the Christian religion. Nothing more. What say ye? Hello again, and welcome to the Valkyrie Underground with me, your host, Urban Jungle Girl. Thank you so much for joining me on the Might is Right Network at mightisright.net. Today is Monday, December the 1st, 2014. Between the live podcast, Might is Right streams 24 hours a day, some of the best white racialist material and music out there. Monday is Valkyrie Underground with me. Tuesday is Berserker Bastion with Ruthless Rob. Wednesday is the Strategy Session with Norm. Thursday is the Mighty's Right Power Hour with Bill Rise. And Sunday is Open Lines. Well, first of all, the show tonight uh, is to be or not to be. And uh, it's kind of a, a continuation of uh, a bit of what I did last week, but um, with twists. And I want to say, first of all, that I need to correct a statement that I made in my last show regarding Richard Dawkins. I stated very incorrectly that he was a Jew, and he is not, and my apologies for that. I will be more careful uh, in the future. So tonight I will be doing another medley of uh, sort of Christ insanity topics and more things from an Aryan perspective. I will not be taking calls tonight. So, let's get to it. First, I thought I wanted to present some quotes um, from people that are known on Christ insanity. So, I'll start with that. John Adams, 1735 to 1826, quote, 
As I understand the Christian religion, it was and is a revelation. But how has it happened that millions of fables, tales, legends have blended with both Jewish and Christian revelation that have made them the most bloody religion that ever existed? Quote, again John Adams, I almost shudder at the thought of alluding to the most fatal example of the abuses of grief which the history of mankind has preserved, the cross. Consider what calamities that engine of grief has produced. Benjamin Franklin, 1706 to 1790. I have found Christian dogma unintelligible. Early in life, I absented myself from Christian assemblies. Quote, lighthouses are more helpful than churches. Robert Green Ingersoll, 1833 to 1899. Quote, every pulpit is a pillory in which stands a hired culprit defending the justice of his own imprisonment. Quote, labor is the only prayer that nature answers. Quote, the clergy know that I know that they know that they do not know. Quote, as long as every question is answered by the word God, scientific inquiry is simply impossible. Quote, the inspiration of the Bible depends upon the ignorance of the gentleman who reads it. Quote, it may be that ministers really think that their prayers do good, and it may be that frogs imagine that their croaking brings spring. Richard Dawkins, 1941 to now. Quote, religion teaches the dangerous nonsense that death is not the end. Quote, faith is the great cop-out, the great excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate evidence. Faith is belief in spite of, even perhaps because of, the lack of evidence. Ruth Hermans Green, 1915-1981, quote, Today, evolution of human intelligence has advanced us to the stage where most of us are too smart to invent new gods, but are reluctant to give up the old ones. Quote, I am fond of saying that reading the Bible turned me into an atheist. Quote, I am now convinced that children should not be subjected to the frightfulness of the Christian religion. If the concept of a father who plots to have his own son put to death is presented to children as beautiful and as worthy of society's admiration, what types of human behavior can be presented to them as reprehensible? Quote, there was a time when religion ruled the world. It is known as the Dark Ages. Mark Twain, 1835-1910, quote, the gods offer no rewards for intellect. There was never one yet that showed any interest in it. Quote, Satan hasn't a single salaried helper. The opposition employs a million. Quote, we may not doubt that society in heaven consists mainly of undesirable persons. Quote, I was dead for a million of years before I was born and it never inconvenienced me a bit. Thomas Alva Edison, 1847-1931, to quote, To those searching for truth, not the truth of dogma and darkness, but the truth brought by reason, search, examination, and inquiry, discipline is required. For faith as well intentioned as it may be, 
must be built on facts, not fiction. Faith in fiction is a damnable false hope. Quote, I do not believe that any type of religion should ever be introduced into the public schools of the United States. Quote, the great trouble is that the preachers get the children from six to seven years of age, and then it is almost impossible to do anything with them. Thomas Henry Huxley, 1825 to 1895, quote, Skepticism is the highest duty and blind faith the one unpardonable sin. George Washington, 1732 to 1799, of all the animosities which have existed among mankind, those which are caused by a difference of sentiments in religion appear to be the most inveterate and distressing and ought to be deprecated. Isaac Asimov, 1920 to 1992. Quote, Properly read, the Bible is the most potent force for atheism ever conceived. Quote, if I were not an atheist, I would believe in a God who would choose to save people on the basis of the totality of their lives and not the pattern of their words. I think he would prefer an honest and righteous atheist to a TV preacher whose every word is God, 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 and whose every deed is foul, foul, foul. Ralph Waldo Emerson, 1803-1883, quote, a man's prayers are a disease of the will, so are their creeds a disease of the intellect. Quote, the religion of one age is the literary entertainment of the next. Quote, Nothing is at last sacred but the Almighty of your own mind. Voltaire, 1694-1778 Quote, If we believe absurdities, we shall commit atrocities. Quote, the truths of religion are never as well understood as by those who have lost the power of reasoning. Quote, every sensible man, every honest man, must hold the Christian sect in horror. Quote, God is a comedian playing to an audience too afraid to laugh. Quote, which is more dangerous? Fanaticism or atheism? Fanaticism is certainly a thousand times more deadly, for atheism inspires no bloody passion, whereas fanaticism does. Atheism is opposed to crime, and fanaticism causes crimes to be committed. Quote, A clergyman is one who feels himself called upon to live without working at the expense of the rascals who work to live. Thomas Jefferson 1743 to 1826. Quote, I have recently been examining all the known superstitions of the world and do not find in our particular superstition, Christianity, one redeeming feature. They are all alike, founded upon fables and mythologies. Quote, the day will come when the mystical generation of Jesus, by the Supreme Being as his Father, in the womb of a virgin, will be classed with the fable of the generation of Minerva in the brain of Jupiter. Quote, it is too late in the day for men of sincerity to pretend they believe in the platonic mysticism that there are one and one is three, and yet the one is not three, 
and the three is one. But this constitutes the craft, the power, and profits of the priests. Sweep away their gossamer fabrics of fictitious religion, and they will catch no more flies. Thomas Paine, 1734 to 1809. Priest and conjurers are of the same trade. Quote, the Bible is a book that has been read more and examined less than any book that ever existed. Quote, the declaration which says that God visits the sins of the fathers upon the children is contrary to every principle of moral justice. Quote, whenever we read the obscene stories, the voluptuous debaucheries, the cruel and torturous executions, the unrelenting vindictiveness with which more than half of the Bible is filled, it would be more consistent that we call it the word of a demon than the word of a god. It is a history of wickedness that has served to corrupt and brutalize mankind, and for my part, I sincerely detest it as I detest everything that is cruel. Quote, that God cannot lie is no advantage to your argument, because it is not proof that priest cannot, or that the Bible does not. Quote, the New Testament, compared with the Old, is like a farce of one act. Quote, as to the book called the Bible, it is blasphemy to call it the Word of God, it is a book of lies and contradictions and a history of bad times and bad men. Quote, it is far better that we admitted a thousand devils to Rome at large than that we permitted one such imposter and monster as Moses, Joshua, Samuel, and the Bible prophets to come with the pretended word of God and have credit among us. Quote, the age of ignorance commenced with the Christian system. Quote, prophesying is lying professionally. Now I thought I would quote some uh, remarks from Hitler regarding Christianity. Bolshevism, the illegitimate child of Christianity. And these are taken from uh, Hitler Speaks and also from some of his table talks. So some of you may be familiar with these and some may not. Quote, the heaviest blow that ever struck humanity was the coming of Christianity. Bolshevism is Christianity's illegitimate child. Both are inventions of the Jew. The deliberate lie in the matter of religion was introduced into the world by Christianity. Bolshevism practices a lie of the same nature when it claims to bring liberty to men, whereas in reality it seeks only to enslave them. In the ancient world, the relations between men and gods were founded on an instinctive respect. It was a world enlightened by the idea of tolerance. Christianity was the first creed in the world to exterminate its adversaries in the name of love. Its keynote is intolerance. Quote, Without Christianity, we should not have had Islam the Roman Empire, under Germanic influence, would have developed in the direction of world domination, and humanity would not have extinguished 15 centuries of civilization in a single stroke. Quote, Christianity is a rebellion against natural law, a protest against nature. Taken to its logical extreme, Christianity would mean the systematic cultivation 
of the human failure. Quote, Science cannot lie, for it's always striving, according to the momentary state of knowledge, to deduce what is true. When it makes a mistake, it does so in good faith. It's Christianity that's the liar. It's in perpetual conflict with itself. Quote, Of old, it was in the name of Christianity. Today, it's in the name of Bolshevism. Yesterday, the instigator was Saul. The instigator today, Mordecai. Saul has changed into St. Paul and Mordecai into Karl Marx. By exterminating this pest, we shall do humanity a service of which our soldiers can have no idea. Quote, But Christianity is an invention of sick brains. One could imagine nothing more senseless nor any more indecent way of turning the idea of the Godhead into a mockery. Quote, Pure Christianity, the Christianity of the catacombs, is concerned with translating the Christian doctrine into facts. It leads quite simply to the annihilation of mankind. It is merely wholehearted Bolshevism under a tinsel of metaphysics. Quote, it was Christianity that brought about the fall of Rome, not the Germans or the Huns. What Bolshevism is achieving today on the materialist and technical level, Christianity had achieved on the metaphysical level. Quote, it is jewelry that always destroys the order. It constantly provokes the revolt of the weak against the strong, of bestiality against intelligence, of quantity against quality. It took 14 centuries for Christianity to reach the peak of savagery and stupidity. We would therefore be wrong to sin by excess of confidence and proclaim our definite victory over Bolshevism. The more we render the Jew incapable of harming us, the more we shall protect ourselves from this danger. The Jew plays in nature the role of catalyzing element. A people that is rid of its Jews returns spontaneously to the natural order. Quote, Christianity is the worst of the regressions that mankind can ever have undergone, and it's the Jews who, thanks to this diabolical invention, has thrown him back 15 centuries. The only thing that would be still worse would be the victory for the Jew through Bolshevism. If Bolshevism triumphed, mankind would lose the gift of laughter and joy. It would become merely a shapeless mass, doomed to grayness and despair. Quote, the same thing is happening to music as is happening to beauty in a world dominated by the shavelings. The Christian religion is an enemy to beauty. Quote, I shall never come personally to terms with the Christian lie. Quote, this terrorism in religion is the product, to put it briefly, of a Jewish dogma which Christianity has universalized and whose effect is to sow trouble and confusion in men's minds. It's obvious that in the realm of belief, terrorist teachings have no other object but to distract men from their natural optimism and to develop in them the instinct of cowardice. Quote, the religion fabricated by Paul of Tarsus, which was later called Christianity, is nothing but the communism of today. Bormann intervened, quote, Jewish methods, he said, have never varied in their essentials. Everywhere they have stirred up the plebs against the ruling classes. Everywhere they have fostered discontent against the established power. 
for these are the seeds which produce the crop they hope later to gather. Everywhere they fan the flames of hatred between peoples of the same blood. It is they who invented class warfare, and the reputation of this theory must therefore always be an anti-Jewish measure. In the same way, any doctrine which is anti-communist, any doctrine which is anti-Christian, must ipso facto be anti-Jewish as well. The National Socialist doctrine is therefore anti-Jewish in excelsis, for it is both anti-communist and anti-Christian. National Socialism is solid to the core, and the whole of its strength is concentrated against the Jews, even in matters which appears to have a purely social aspect and are designed for the furtherance of social amenities of our people. The Fuhrer concluded, Bergdorf, has just given me a paper which deals with the relationship between communism and Christianity. It is comforting to see how even in these days, the fatal relationship between the two is daily becoming clearer to the human intelligence. And I would add, if only. What is atheism? No one asks this question enough. The reason no one asks this question a lot is because most people have preconceived ideas and notions about what an atheist is and is not. Where these preconceived ideas come from vary, but they tend to evolve from theistic influences or other sources. Atheism is usually defined incorrectly as a belief system. Atheism is not disbelief in gods or a denial of gods. It is a lack of belief in gods. Older dictionaries defined atheism as, quote, a belief that there is no God, end quote. Some dictionaries even go as far as to define atheism as, quote, wickedness, end quote, sinfulness, end quote, and other derogatory adjectives. Clearly, theistic influence taints dictionaries. People cannot trust these dictionaries to define atheism, the fact that dictionaries define atheism as, quote, there is no God, end quote, betrays the monotheistic influence. Without the monotheistic influence, the definition would at least read, quote, there are no gods. Why should atheists allow theists to define who atheists are? Do other minorities allow the majority to define their character, views, and opinions? No, they do not. So why does everyone expect atheists to lie down and accept the definition placed upon them by the world's theists? Atheists will define themselves. Atheism is not a belief system, nor is it a religion. While there are some religions that are atheistic, certain sects of Buddhism, for example, that does not mean that atheism is a religion. Two commonly used retorts to the nonsense that atheism is a religion are if atheism is a religion, then bald is a hair color, and two, if atheism is a religion, then health is a disease. The only common thread that ties all atheists together is a lack of belief in gods and supernatural beings. Some of the best debates we have ever had have been with fellow atheists, this is because atheists do not have a common belief system, sacred scripture, or atheist pope. This means atheists often disagree on many issues and ideas. Atheists come in a variety of shapes, colors, beliefs, convictions, and backgrounds, 
We are as unique as our fingerprints. thought that was interesting. I'm going to present a very good piece by uh, William Pierce that is from his book, Who We Are. And I don't know if people have heard this in the computerized version of the replays, but uh, I actually haven't and and have sort of looked for it. But uh, this is Chapter 18 on Christianity, and I wanted to cover that. So, During the turbulent and eventful 5th century, the Germans largely completed their conquest of the West. In the early years of that century, German tribesmen who had been raiding the coast of Roman Britain for many years began a permanent invasion of the southwest portion of the island, a development which was eventually to lead to a Germanic Britain. In 476, Bodacre, an Ostagothic chieftain who had become a general of Rome's armies, deposed the last Roman emperor and ruled in his own name as king of Italy. Meanwhile, the Visigoths were expanding their holdings in Gaul and completing their conquest of Spain, except for the northwest region already held by the Swabian cousins and an enclave in the Pyrenees occupied by a remnant of the aboriginal Mediterranean inhabitants of the peninsula, the Basques. And throughout the latter part of the century, the Franks, the Alemanni, and the Burgundians were consolidating their own holds on the former Roman province of Gaul, establishing new kingdoms and laying the basis for the new European civilization of the Middle Ages. Everywhere in the West, the old decaying civilization, centered on the Mediterranean, gave way to the vigorous white barbarians from the North. Oriental infection. But the Germans did not make their conquest of the Roman world without becoming infected by some of the diseases which flourished so unwholesomely in Rome during her last days. Foremost among these was an infection which the Romans themselves had caught during the first century, a consequence of their own conquest of the Levant. It had begun as an offshoot of Judaism, had established itself in Jerusalem and a few other spots in the eastern Mediterranean area, and had traveled to Rome with Jewish merchants and speculators who had found long that city an attractive center of operations. It eventually became known to the world as Christianity, but for more than two centuries it festered in the sewers and catacombs of Rome along with dozens of other alien religious sects from the Levant. Its first adherents were Rome's slaves, a cosmopolitan lot from all the lands conquered by the Romans, It was a religion designed to appeal to slaves. Blessed are the poor, the meek, the wretched, the despised, it told them. For you shall inherit the earth from the strong, the brave, the proud, and the mighty. There will be pie in the sky for all believers, and the rest will suffer eternal torment. It appealed directly to a sense of envy and resentment of the weak against the strong. Edict of Milan By the end of the 3rd century, Christianity had become the most popular as well as the most militant of the Oriental sects flourishing among the largely non-Roman inhabitants of the decaying Roman Empire. Even as late as the first years of the 4th century under Emperor Diocletian, the Roman government was still making efforts to keep the Christians under control. But in 313, a new emperor, Constantine, decided that if you can't lick them, join them and he issued an imperial edict legitimizing Christianity. 
Although one of Constantine's successors, Julian, attempted to reverse the continuing Christianization of Roman Empire a few years later, it was already too late. The Goths, who had made up the bulk of Rome's armies by this time, had caught the infection from one of their own slaves, a Christian captive, whom they called Wolfila. Wolfila was a tireless and effective missionary, and the Goths were an uprooted and unsettled people, among whom the new religion took hold easily. Wolfila, or I don't know if it's Wolfila, translation of the Bible into Gothic greatly speeded up the process. Conversion of the Franks Before the end of the 4th century, Christianity had also spread to the Vandals, Burgundians, Lombards, Gepids, and several other German tribes. A little over a century later, this powerful nation of the Franks was converted. By the beginning of the second quarter of the 6th century, the only non-Christian whites left were the Bavarians, Thuringians, Saxons, Frisians, Danes, Swedes, and Norse among the Germans, and virtually all the Balts and Slavs. One can only understand the rapid spread of Christianity during the 4th and 5th centuries by realizing that, for all practical purposes, it had no opposition. That is, there was no other organized, militant, proselytizing church competing effectively with the Christian church. Athanaric the Goth The Christians had many individual opponents, of course. Among the Romans, several of the more responsible and civic-minded emperors, such as Diocletian, as well as what was left of the traditional-minded aristocracy, and among the Germans, many far-sighted leaders who resisted the imposition of an alien creed on their people and the abandonment of their ancient traditions. Athenaric, the great Gothic chieftain, who led his people across the Danube in 376 to save them from the invading Huns, was notable in this regard. Athenaric and the other traditionalists failed to halt the spread of Christianity, because they were only individuals. Although there were pagan priests, the traditional German religion never really had a church associated with it. It consisted in a body of beliefs, tales, and practices, passed from generation to generation, but it had no centralized organization like Christianity. Folk Religion German religion was a folk religion which grew organically out of the people and out of the land they occupied. The boundary between a tribe's most ancient historical legends and its religious myths, between its long-dead heroes and chieftains and its gods, were blurred at best. Because German religion belonged to the people and the land, it was not a proselytizing religion. The German attitude was that other people and races likewise had their own folk religions, and it would be unnatural to impose one race's religion on another race. And because German religion was rooted in the land as well as in the people, it lost some of its viability when the people were uprooted from their land. It is no coincidence that the conversions of the Goths, Vandals, Burgundians, Lombards, Franks, and many other German tribes took place during the Volker Wanderung, period of strife, disorientation, and misery for many of those involved, a period when whole nations lost not only their ancient homelands, but their very identities. Fire and sword. After the Vokurundurin, I didn't say that right that time, ended in the 6th century, 
the Christianization of the remaining pagan peoples of Europe proceeded much more slowly, and generally by fire and sword, rather than by peaceful missionary effort. Whereas the Franks had become Christians more or less painlessly when their king Clovis, or Clodweg, converted for political reasons at the end of the 5th century, it was another 300 years before the Frankish king Charlemagne, or Carl the Great, was able to bring about the conversion of his Saxon neighbors, and he accomplished that only by butchering half of them in a series of genocidal wars. Early Christianity, in contrast to German religion, was as utterly intolerant as the Judaism from which it sprang. Even Roman religion, which as an official state religion equated religious observance with patriotism, tolerated the existence of other sects so long as they did not threaten the state. But the early Christians were inspired by a fanatical hatred of all opposing creeds. Also, in contrast to German and Roman religion, Christianity, despite its specifically Jewish roots, claimed to be a universal, i.e. Catholic, creed, equally applicable to Germans, Romans, Jews, Huns, and Negroes. The Christians took the Jewish tribal god Yahweh, or Jehovah, and universalized him. Originally, he seems to have been a deity associated with one of the dormant volcanoes of the Arabian Peninsula, a god so distinctly Semitic that he had a blinding business contract or covenant with his followers. If the Jews would remain faithful and obedient to him, he would deliver all the wealth of the non-Jewish peoples of the world into their hands. Observant Jews today even remind themselves of this by fastening matazoth to the door frames of their homes, wherein the verses from their Torah spelling out the Jews side of their licentious deal with Yahweh are inscribed. Uh, read Deuteronomy 6, 4-9 and 11-21. Yahweh's reciprocal obligations are in the verses immediately following. Nevertheless, the early Christian church, armed with an effective organization and a proselytizing fervor, and armored with a supreme contempt for everything non-Christian, was able to supplant Jupiter and Wotan alike with Yahweh. The Germans, however, recreated the Semitic Yahweh in the image of their own Wotan, even as they accepted the new faith. The entire Christian ritual, the doctrine, in fact, were to a large extent Aryanized by the Germans to suit their own inner nature and lifestyle. They played down the slave religion aspects of Christianity, the meek shall inherit the earth, and emphasized the aspects which appealed to them, I come bearing not peace but a sword. The incoherence and the multitude of internal inconsistencies of the doctrine made this sort of ecclesiastic easy. Yule, Easter, Harvest Festival in general, the Germans accepted without difficulty the Christian rituals, especially those which, like Christmas, Easter, and Thanksgiving, were deliberately redesigned to correspond to pagan rituals and the festivals of long standing and the myths, parthenogenesis, turning water into wine, curing the blind, resurrection from the dead, etc. And they ignored the ethics, turn the other cheek, all men are brothers, etc., a Frank of the 7th or 8th century would tremble in superstitious awe 
before some fragment of bone or vial of dried blood which the church had declared a sacred relic with miracle-working powers. But if you smote him on the cheek, you would have a fight on your hands, not another cheek turned. As for the brotherhood of man and equality in the eyes of the Lord, the Germans had no time for such nonsense. When confronted with non-whites, they instinctively reached for the nearest lethal weapon. They made mincemeat out of the Avars, who were cousins to the Huns in the 7th century, and the Christianized Franks or Goths of that era would know exactly what to do with a few hundred or a few thousand rioting American blacks. They would, in fact, positively release the opportunity to do what needed doing. It could not have been expected to be otherwise. In the first place, a totally alien religion cannot be imposed on a spiritually healthy people, and the Germans were still essentially healthy, despite the dislocations caused by the Volker Wanderung. Christianity had to be modified to suit their nature, at least temporarily. In the second place, the average German did not have to come to grips with the alien moral imperatives of the Sermon on the Mount, all he had to do was learn when to genuflect. Wrestling with holy writ was exclusively the problem of the clergy. It was not until the Reformation in the 16th century that the laity began studying the Bible and thinking seriously about its contents. Even then, however, the tendency was to interpret alien teachings in a way that left them more or less compatible with natural tendencies. Slave morality. But Christian ethics, the slave morality preached in the Roman catacombs, was like a time bomb ticking away in Europe. A Trojan horse brought inside the fortress, waiting for its season. That season came, and the damage was done. Today, Christianity is one of the most active forces working from within to destroy the white race. For the Christian churches came the notion of, quote, the white man's burden, end quote, along with the missionaries who saw in every African cannibal or Chinese coolie a soul to be saved of equal value in the eyes of Jehovah to any white soul. It is entirely a Christian impulse, at least on the part of the average American voter, if not the government, which sends American food and medical supplies to keep alive swarming millions of Asiatics, Africans, and Latins every time they have a famine so that they continue to outbreed whites. The otherworldly emphasis on individual salvation, on an individual relationship between creator and creature, which relegates the relationship between individual and race, tribe, and community to insignificance, the inversion of natural values inherent in the exalting of the botched, the unclean, and the poor in spirit in the Sermon on the Mount, the injection to, quote, resist not evil, and quote, all our prescriptions for racial suicide, Indeed, had a fiendishly clever army set out to concoct a set of doctrines intended to lead the white race to its destruction, he could hardly have done better. The, quote, white guilt, end quote, syndrome exploited so assiduously by American non-white minorities is a product of the Christian teachings. It is the perverse reverence for, quote, God's chosen people, which has paralyzed so many Christian wills to resist Jewish depredations. Moses replaces Hermon. 
Not the least of the damage done by the Christianization of Europe was the gradual replacement of white tradition, legend, and imagery by that of the Jews. Instead of specifically Celtic or German or Slavic heroes, the church's saints, many of them Levinites, were held up to the young for emulation instead of the feats of Hermann or, and I won't be able to say this name, Vercingetorix. Children were taught of the doings of Moses and David. Europeans' artistic inspiration was turned away from the depiction of their own rich heritage and used to glorify that of an alien race. Semitic proverbs and figures of speech took precedence over those of Indo-European provenance. Europeans even abandoned the names of their own ancestors and began giving Jewish names to their children, Samuel and Sarah, John and Joan, Michael and Mary, Daniel and Deborah. Despite all these long-term consequences of Christianity, however, the immediate symptoms of the infection which the conquering Germans picked up from the defeated Romans were hardly noticeable. White morals and manners, motivation and behaviors remained much as they had been, for they were rooted in the genes, but now they had a new rationale. Today's Christian Patriots And it is only fair to note that even today a fairly substantial minority of white men and women who still think of themselves as Christians have not allowed their sounder instincts to be corrupted by doctrines suited to a following of mongrelized slaves. They ignore the Jewish origins of Christianity and justify their instinctive dislike and distrust of Jews with the fact that the Jews, in demanding that Jesus be killed, became a race forever accursed. Quote, his blood be on us and on their children. They interpret the divine injunction of brotherhood as applying only to whites. Like the Franks of the Middle Ages, they believe what suits them and conveniently forget to invent their own interpretation for the rest. Were they the Christian mainstream today, the religion would not be the racial menace that it is. Unfortunately, however, they are not. Virtually none are actively affiliated with any of the larger established churches. And that was an abridged uh, reading of uh, Chapter 18 from Who We Are by William Pierce. And I think I'll take a little break. This is the sun. As far back as 10,000 B.C., history is abundant with carvings and writings reflecting people's respect and adoration for this object. And it is simple to understand why, as every morning the sun would rise, bringing vision, warmth, and security, saving man from the cold, blind, predator-filled darkness of night. Without it, the cultures understood the crops would not grow and life on the planet would not survive. These realities made the sun the most adored object of all time. Likewise, they were also very aware of the stars. The tracking of the stars allowed them to recognize and anticipate events which occurred over long periods of time, such as eclipses and full moons. They in turn cataloged celestial groups into what we know today as constellations. This is the cross of the zodiac, one of the oldest conceptual images in human history. It reflects the sun as it figuratively passes through the 12 major constellations over the course of a year. It also reflects the 12 months of the year, the four seasons, and the solstices and equinoxes. The term zodiac relates to the fact that constellations were anthropomorphized 
or personified as figures or animals. In other words, the early civilizations did not just follow the sun and stars, they personified them with elaborate myths involving their movements and relationships. The sun, with its life-giving and saving qualities, was personified as a representative of the unseen creator or god, God's sun, the light of the world, the savior of humankind. Likewise, the twelve constellations represented places of travel for God's sun and were identified by names, usually representing elements of nature that happened during that period of time. For example, Aquarius, the water bearer, who brings the spring rains. This is Horus. He is the sun god of Egypt of around 3000 BC. He is the sun anthropomorphized in his life is a series of allegorical myths involving the sun's movement in the sky. From the ancient hieroglyphics in Egypt, we know much about the solar messiah. For instance, Horus, being the sun or the light, had an enemy known as Set, and Set was the personification of the darkness or night. And, metaphorically speaking, every morning Horus would win the battle against Set, while in the evening Set would conquer Horus and send him into the underworld. It is important to note that dark versus light, or good versus evil, is one of the most ubiquitous mythological dualities ever known, and is still expressed on many levels to this day. Broadly speaking, the story of Horus is as follows. Horus was born on December 25th of the Virgin Isis, Mary. His birth was accompanied by a star in the east, and upon his birth he was adored by three kings. At the age of 12, he was a prodigal child teacher. And at the age of 30, he was baptized by a figure known as Anup, and thus began his ministry. Horus had 12 disciples he traveled about with, performing miracles such as healing the sick and walking on water. Horus was known by many gestural names such as the Truth, the Light, God's Anointed Son, the Good Shepherd, the Lamb of God, and many others. After being betrayed by Typhon, Horus was crucified, buried for three days, and thus resurrected. These attributes of Horus, whether original or not, seem to permeate many cultures of the world, for many other gods are found to have the same general mythological structure. Attis of Phrygia, born of the Virgin Nana on December 25th, crucified, placed in a tomb, and after three days was resurrected. Krishna of India, born of the Virgin Devaki, with a star in the east signaling his coming. He performed miracles with his disciples, and upon his death was resurrected. Dionysus of Greece, born of a virgin on December 25th, was a traveling teacher who performed miracles such as turning water into wine. He was referred to as the King of Kings, God's only begotten Son, the Alpha and Omega, and many others. And, upon his death, he was resurrected. Mithra of Persia, born of a virgin on December 25th, he had 12 disciples and performed miracles, and upon his death was buried for three days and thus resurrected. He was also referred to as the Truth, the Light, and many others. Interestingly, the sacred day of worship of Mithra was Sunday. The fact of the matter is, there are numerous saviors from different periods from all over the world which subscribe to these general characteristics. The question remains, why these attributes? Why the virgin birth on December 25th? Why dead for three days in the inevitable resurrection? Why twelve disciples or followers? To find out, let's examine the most recent of the solar messiahs. G. 
Jesus Christ was born of the Virgin Mary on December 25th in Bethlehem. His birth was announced by a star in the east, which three kings or magi followed to locate and adorn the new savior. He was a child teacher at 12, and at the age of 30, he was baptized by John the Baptist, and thus began his ministry. Jesus had 12 disciples, which he traveled about with, performing miracles, such as healing the sick, walking on water, raising the dead. He was also known as the King of Kings, the Son of God, the Light of the World, the Alpha and Omega, the Lamb of God, and many, many others. After being betrayed by his disciple Judas and sold for 30 pieces of silver, he was crucified, placed in a tomb, and after three days was resurrected and ascended into heaven. First of all, the birth sequence is completely astrological. The star in the east is Sirius, the brightest star in the night sky, which, on December 24th, aligns with the three brightest stars in Orion's belt. These three bright stars in Orion's belt are called today what they were called in ancient times, the Three Kings. And the Three Kings and the brightest star, Sirius, all point to the place of the sunrise on December 25th. This is why the Three Kings follow the star in the east, in order to locate the sunrise the birth of the sun. The Virgin Mary is the constellation Virgo, also known as Virgo the Virgin. Virgo in Latin means virgin. Virgo is also referred to as the house of bread, and the representation of Virgo is a virgin holding a sheaf of wheat. This house of bread and its symbol of wheat represents August and September, the time of harvest. In turn, Bethlehem, in fact, literally translates to house of bread. Bethlehem is thus a reference to the constellation Virgo, a place in the sky, not on earth. There's another very interesting phenomenon that occurs around December 25th, or the winter solstice. From the summer solstice to the winter solstice, the days become shorter and colder. And from the perspective of the northern hemisphere, the sun appears to move south and get smaller and more scarce. The shortening of the days and the expiration of the crops when approaching the winter solstice symbolized the process of death to the ancients. It was the death of the sun. And by December 22nd, the sun's demise was fully realized. For the sun, having moved south continually for six months, makes it to its lowest point in the sky. Here a curious thing occurs. The sun stops moving south, at least perceivably, for three days. And during this three-day pause, the sun resides in the vicinity of the Southern Cross, or Crux, constellation. And after this time, on December 25th, the sun moves one degree, this time north, foreshadowing longer days, warmth, and spring. And thus it was said, the sun died on the cross, was dead for three days, only to be resurrected or born again. This is why Jesus and numerous other sun gods share the crucifixion, three-day death, and resurrection concept. It is the sun's transition period before it shifts its direction back into the northern hemisphere, bringing spring and thus salvation. However, they did not celebrate the resurrection of the sun until the spring equinox, or Easter. This is because at the spring equinox, the sun officially overpowers the evil darkness, as daytime thereafter becomes longer in duration than the night, and the revitalizing conditions of spring emerge. Now, probably the most obvious of all the astrological symbolism around Jesus regards the twelve disciples. They are simply the twelve constellations of the zodiac, which Jesus, being the sun, travels about with. 
in fact, the number 12 is replete throughout the Bible. Coming back to the cross of the zodiac, the figurative life of the sun, this was not just an artistic expression or tool to track the sun's movement. It was also a pagan spiritual symbol, the shorthand of which looked like this. This is not a symbol of Christianity. It is a pagan adaptation of the cross of the zodiac. Hello, I'm back. Well, you know, I always think I don't have enough material, and then I look at the clock and I think, oh my, how will I cover everything? Well, let me try to cover all of this tonight because I want to talk about holidays, because it's December, and uh, what that means. And so I'm going to try to go as fast as I can. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about the Dark Ages. I've touched on that before, and I hope I'm not boring you. But anyway, um, the Dark Ages is a term used to describe the period between the fall of the Roman Empire and the Renaissance. It is called by that name because the period is characterized by a relative scarcity of historical and other written records, at least for some areas of Europe, rendering it obscure to historians. We can also read that, quote, the concept of the Dark Age originated with the Italian scholar Petrarch, or Francesco Petrarca, in the 1330s and was originally intended as a sweeping criticism of the character of late Latin literature. Petrarch regarded the post-Roman centuries as, quote, dark compared to the light of classical antiquity. Later, historians expanded the term to refer to the transitional period between Roman times and the High Middle Ages, circa 11th to the 13th centuries including the lack of Latin literature and a lack of contemporary written history, general demographic decline, limiting building activity and material, cultural achievements in general. Later historians and writers picked up the concept, and popular culture has further expanded on it as a vehicle to depict the Middle Ages, a time of backwardness extending its pejorative use and expanding its scope. As we know, the fall of Rome came shortly after the introduction of Judeo-Christianity as the official cult, and we also know that the Renaissance was a renaissance of the, quote, pagan, i.e. European culture, ideals, philosophy, science, and values, that by the 14th century had begun to return to Europe from the Muslim world via crusades and Muslim invaders. Unlike the Judeo-Christians, who burned and destroyed everything European they came across, the Muslims had kept the European literature they came across. The early Dark Ages are described as, quote, the migration period, and quote, when different European tribes moved about, first Huns and Goths, Vandals, Saxons, Jutes and Angles, and other Germanic tribes, then Slavs and others too. They were, according to history, forced to move by other tribes. History doesn't say much about why this migration period came about in the first place, though, why the first tribes started to migrate, pushing others to do the same. We do, however, know that the Scandinavians started to move about in the Viking Age, and we know that they were not forced to move by other migrating tribes. They started to move about because of the aggression of Judeo-Christians in the south. Yes, interestingly, the moving about, quote-unquote, of tribes correspond well only with the spread of Judeo-Christianity in Europe. 
After Southern Europe had been Christianized, the spread of Judeo-Christianity came first to Western Europe, then to Eastern Europe, and finally to Northern Europe. And wherever it came, the tribes started to migrate. Rather than tell us what happened at this time of demographic decline, historians today just safely state that, quote, we don't know, it's a dark age. And of course, is very convenient for the Judeo-Christians, whose historians basically say that, quote, Judeo-Christianity rose in the Roman Empire in spite of the cruel and unjust persecution by the emperors. Then the Roman Empire fell because of pressure from barbarians, quote-unquote, not because of the disruptive, criminal, and destructive work of Judeo-Christians inside the Roman Empire. And after a few hundred years of historical darkness that we don't know much about, most of Europe emerged Judeo-Christian. We have written sources describing how the Romans, the Scandinavians, the Balts, and the Finns resisted the Christianization violently, but conveniently, we have no sources describing how the other Europeans reacted. But we are told to believe that the other European tribes were simply converted because the message of, quote, Jesus, end quote, is so true and convincing, of course. We just know that they started to migrate and that there was, quote, demographic decline in Europe at the time. And then when history was being recorded again, they were all Judeo-Christians. Hallelujah. Sigh. Let me tell you what I think happened. The Judeo-Christians destroyed the Roman Empire from within, and whilst doing so, the barbarian peoples of Europe defended themselves from the Judeo-Christian poison coming from the Roman Empire by attacking the Roman Empire, just like the Scandinavians defended themselves from the same poison a few hundred years later in the Viking Age, by attacking mainly the Judeo-Christian missionary centers, i.e. monasteries, in Judeo-Christian Europe. The conversion of Europeans was, as described in the later Scandinavian Viking Age sources, by means of threats, violence, torture, hostage-taking, child abduction, and murder. The Judeo-Christians operated the most ruthless, violent, and cruel mafias, with the Pope and the great patriarch as the godfathers, and gained power in the same manner as criminal organizations today gain power. This caused entire tribes to migrate, to flee from their terror in an attempt to get away from them. So the Saxons, the Jutes, the Angles, the Belgae, etc., fled to pagan lands, the British Isles. Others charged head-on and sacked Rome again, yet others moved entirely out of Europe, like the Vandals. When the Judeo-Christian, Sicarii-like mob came to Scandinavia just before the Viking Age, this was the reason for the sudden, quote, Viking activity, and only then came the, quote, Viking Age, and many thereto fled to Ireland, to Scotland, to Iceland, and even to the Americas, where the Judeo-Christians were weak, or where they had no power at all, or they charged head-on and sacked the monasteries, for whence the terrorists came and cut them down like the genocidal criminals that they were. Yes, I think the demographic decline in Europe from year 400 to 800 was a result of genocide perpetrated by Judeo-Christians. They were terrorizing and killing Europeans in mass, men and women, young and old, boys and girls, and even infants. And we don't know about this because they covered up their crimes by, conveniently, 
erasing 400 years of written history. And they could do that. They wrote this history themselves. They kept the books themselves in their monasteries. Getting rid of these books was no problem, so they did. And they still do the same, even to the events we have experienced in our own age. They erase or rewrite history as they see fit. To us, it's just a dark age that we know, quote, nothing about. And then we are supposed to believe that Europe accepted Judeo-Christianity willingly, without resistance. The Viking Age is written off as the fruits of Scandinavian barbarism, quote-unquote, and, quote, pagan aggression. And the Roman resistance was just absurd and only a result of ignorance. Quote, they even accused the Judeo-Christians of cannibalism. Ha, ha, ha. End quote. How ridiculous, right? The hard facts are that Europe, after the Christianization and before the Renaissance, is referred to by modern scientists, including archaeologists, like this. Quote, General demographic decline, limited building activity, and material, cultural achievements in general. End quote. These are the fruits of Judeo-Christianity. Europe, before Judeo-Christianity, was prosperous, scientifically advanced, educated, healthy, spiritually advanced, culturally advanced, and artistically advanced, and all of this did only return to Europe with the Renaissance, the beginning of the end of Judeo-Christianity in Europe. When Europe started to fight back its own roots, Europe started the long walk back to life after having suffered in the Judeo-Christian darkness for so long. We are still walking, or rather climbing uphill, back to Olympus, so to speak. We still struggle to get rid of the darkness, but we prevail. Every day we live, we prevail over their darkness. We have found the light of our forebears, and no amount of Judeo-Christian darkness can extinguish that light. Finally, I will add a note on how to destroy Judeo-Christianity in Europe and remove it from our soil, lock, stock, and barrel. We just have to inform our young about the nature and origin of Judeo-Christianity and raise them as good Europeans instead. No informed, sane, well-fed, healthy, and free human being will ever convert or has ever converted to Judeo-Christianity. Forget about the old. They are lost to brainwash and shame and are soon dead anyhow from old age but we must make sure that they take their perverse foreign cult with them when they die. Judeo-Christianity can, in theory, be completely removed from Europe in only one single generation. Let us do so. If we do, all our other problems will go away too, because Judeo-Christianity is the route to just about all of our problems today. Hail the European tribes still alive. And that was from the uh, Thulean Perspective, Varg Varkness. I want to read two pieces by um, David Lane because I like including his things. So, this is an open letter to a dead race. Today, in the year 2005, approximately 2% of the Earth's population is white female of childbearing age or younger. The white race is dead, murdered by a coalition of Jews, Christian universalists, anti-nature dupes, opportunistic political whores, media moguls, over-educated intellectuals, dogmatic nationalists, feminist tools, assorted misfits and cowards. 
The remaining whites are hopelessly integrated, terrorized, brainwashed, miscegenated, and are rapidly being overrun by six billion coloreds. As a viable entity with a means to survive, the white race is extinct. The few of us who resisted genocide are analogous to a few living cells within a corpse. No longer able to deceive their followers about the extent of our racial peril, most of the white so-called, quote, leaders, end quote, have adopted a new policy of retreat and defeat. This time they advise building small white communities in the hinterlands or just educating children properly. They will do anything to avoid the giving or receiving of fatal battle strokes. They know full well that our race cannot survive without nations of our own. They know we don't have another ten years to procrastinate. They know that a few white families submerged in six billion colors means exactly nothing. They know America will bomb into submission any nation that tries to stay white. They know their cowardly advice is nothing but further retreat into the abyss from which there is no return. They know that total revolution and anarchy from the likes of Bob Matthews and Tim McVeigh are the only solutions remaining, but they are either cowards or deceiving enemy agents. They know the revolution must come from disenfranchised white males, yet they pander to women and their, quote, traditional family and, quote, and peaceful solutions, quote, unquote, dogma, because they are feminist, flogged, spaniels. No disrespect to our few good women, it was because the beauty of the white Aryan woman must not perish from the earth, end quote, that I entered this struggle. But as a rule, women will put individuals and their families ahead of the survival of the whole race. A warrior risking his life and freedom does not make a good provider in this day and age. Because I speak the truth, there isn't a woman in this world that doesn't despise me. We want a, quote, responsible, end quote, man, they proclaim. Well, what is, quote, responsibility in an occupied country but treason and slavery? Go off to your factories and warehouses, your counting houses, your fields, and slave your life away. Then pay half your wages in taxes that are used to finance the murder of your race. After work, relax in your Chinese-made clothes, eat off your Korean dishes, and on your Japanese TV, watch as white women cavort with Jews, Negroes, and Mexicans. Guess I am the best one to speak the truth. Can't get a woman into prison to give me some loving anyway, so let them hate me. From the dawn of history, those out of power have raised armies with promise of plunder, revenge, and capturing women. There are no other possible motivations or rewards do not try to intimidate the last possible white warriors with reactionary buzzwords like theft, rape, and murder. The, quote, law is what those in power use to enslave those who are out of power. White man, you are a defeated, comical slave, laughed at by all the world and scorned or used by your own women. Does the term, quote, women and minorities, end quote, ring a bell for you? The alliance is against you, and you are the true minority to boot. Your choices are twofold. Accept your chains, the demise of your race, and the loss of your women, or consider and hearken to the words of Robert J. Matthews as he speaks from his grave. Quote, Give your souls to your gods and load your guns. It's time to deal in lead. 
We are the legions of the damned, the army of the already dead, end quote. Unless we have an unseen enemy of total barbarians devoid of pity, of compassion, of compunctions, of restraining moralisms, we are doomed. He who practices chivalry when the enemy has none fights with both hands tied behind his back. Our army must have commitment equal to that of Palestinian suicide bombers fighting to free their land from the scourge of all the earth. Better one day as a lion than years as a sheep. Take plunder, women, and the lives of your enemies. Let no pleasure pass you by in your short surgeon to Midgard, including revenge, wives, sisters, and daughters of your enemies. How many alive priests or virgin nuns do you think your Viking ancestors left behind when raiding the monasteries or convents of the evil anti-nature occupation of Europe 12 centuries ago? Civilization has ended. This is war. Be a berserker until the day you depart for Valhalla with a pound of the enemies led in your still defiant body. Only out of anarchy and revolution can a new white nation arise. And if you do not succeed, let the enemy speak in horror for generations to come of the fury of the last Northmen. And I know that's a little depressing, but it's also uh, a little invigorating. And so I had to make a point to read that. And I'm going to read another piece by David Lane called Crap. Christian right-wing American patriots. My last article, not because I'm giving up the struggle, it appears that my destiny and role in this war for white survival is to set an example of utter defiance until someday, dying in the prisons of my enemies, so be it. Not my last article because I'm planning to kick the bucket in the near future either, although such is known only to the norms. This is my last article, barring unforeseen circumstances because everything necessary has already been said. If not by me, then Rockwell, Hitler, Yaki, and hosts of others. Thousands of our folk, at least, and perhaps millions, know that our white race is facing extinction, and they know it is a plan of tyrants who are wealthy beyond conception, in league with the mindless universalists. This genocide, meaning the murder of our race, has seldom been resisted except with words. It has been written about, read about, gossiped about, and sung about in millions of works. If words without swords had any value whatsoever, we would have beaten our enemies to death a long time ago. But unfortunately, compromise, comfort, and cowardice are the predominant traits in the modern white male. They are a total disgrace to the memory of their ancestors. So now our race is little more than a walking corpse. When the Supreme Court struck down the laws against interracial marriage, were there nine black-robed devils found hanging by their necks the next day? No. Why not? Because the modern white man, the crap, is a castrated, selfish pussy. When the U.S. military used bayonets to push white girls into colored schools, was there a rebellion? No. Why? because the modern white man is such a stinking maggot that he makes camel shit smell like roses. Shall I continue with forced busing, movies and television, promoting interracial marriage, the destruction of the racial basis of our European homeland in words, wars, etc., etc., ad nauseum without end? Why should I? It's only more words. 
Once upon a time, when white men still had some integrity, words did have value, but speaking to walking, talking piles of camel shit is a waste of breath and ink. I have told the crap for many years that in the wars, revolutions, and assassinations that America has financed and participated in, from Dixie to Cuba to Mexico to Panama to Italy to Germany, twice to Korea, to Vietnam, to Iraq, to Iran, to Libya, to Bosnia, to Serbia, to Waco, to Ruby Ridge, to Afghanistan, and on and on. The dead and maimed victims number 200 million or more, half of them white, many of them women and children, determined to destroy the integrity of races, nations, and cultures for the Jew world order, the red, white, and blue traveling man's murder machine, has been an engine of holocaust, genocide, and death unmatched in human history. But still the crap wraps logic five times around a crooked tree to proclaim themselves, quote, American patriots, end quote, who support, quote, our boys, end quote, as they bomb helpless nations into the Stone Age and blow tens of thousands or millions of women and children into tiny fragments Always looking for someone else to blame, the crap screams, it's the Jews, it's the Jews. Well, I'd be the last to deny that the media is dominated by Jews who have an agenda of world domination and of extinction for white Aryans. But it has been Christians who for a century have been giving the white man's food, medicine, wealth, technology, and education to the colored races. It is the crap who now surrenders the last of the white man's women, power, and territory to the colored races. Quote, Oh, that was those other Christians, end quote, the crap declares. It was the Christians who slaughtered each other in the Catholic versus Protestant wars, including the horrible Thirty-Year War, the Inquisition with people torn to pieces on the rack, It was the Christians who burned at least tens of thousands of white women at the stake as witches. It was the Christians who hanged 19 women as witches in Salem, Massachusetts, just 84 years before the American Revolution. It was the Christians who persecuted, tortured, and murdered all followers of our native indigenous religions, especially Odinists, Wotanists, or Wootenists. It was Christians who forced our folk to profess literal belief in supernatural myths which deny the laws of nature, knowing full well that when the gates of the mind are open to the first irrational premise, then there are no barriers to a flood of insanity. So now our folk are literally insane, suicidal insane. Two thousand years ago, Julius Caesar said that as long as he could invent an enemy of the empire... He could remain in power by employing calls to patriotism. The crap are so insane that they still fall for the same game as they go off to kill and make hundreds of millions for the Judeo-American, Judeo-Christian empire. Our race cannot survive without nations in which we are the only inhabitants. Anyone who claims that America can be made a white nation is either totally insane or a deliberate deceiver. Unfortunately, also called white leaders since the Civil War in America have been compromising deceivers. As far as I know, I'm the only one who has ever told the whole truth about America, Christianity, philosophy, history, and natural law religion. 
If we are to accomplish the 14 words, then we must become revolutionaries. A revolution, in fact, is preceded by a revolution in the mind. We cannot continue to worship or compromise with our executioners' institutions, overthrow them or leave them, but you cannot procrastinate or compromise any longer. David Lane. Now I'm going to talk about I'm going to talk about Odinism or Wotanism. Then I'm going to talk about our holidays a little bit. And I got these uh, things from the Holy Nation of Odin. dot org. The nine noble virtues of Odinism. And I'm going to have a sip of tea first. Okay. One, courage, boldness, bravery, standing up for what you believe in and know is right. Two, honesty. Truth in all things, to be true to yourself and to others. Three, honor. Do as you say and act upon your convictions. Always honor your oaths. Four, truth. Loyalty to yourself, family, folk, friends, and the gods and goddesses. Five, strength. Self-rule, self-mastery the self-control and discipline to govern yourself by your convictions. Six, hospitality, to freely share your gifts with others. Seven, industriousness, to work wholeheartedly, both hard and intelligently, to keep thinking and growing as a person. Eight, self-reliance, freestanding, rely on others as little as possible. Nine, perseverance. Don't give up at what you do until you feel it is completed and well done. And those are the nine noble virtues. There are also, uh, in Odinism, 14 codes of the Aryan ethic. Those codes are as follows. One, honor no gods but those of your own folk as alien gods destroy you. Two, nature's laws evidence the divine plan as the natural world is the work of all Father Odin. Three, act nobly and courageously, always carefully, considering the consequences of your actions as the effects of your deeds live on after you pass from Midgard. Four, live within the reality of this life. Fear not your fate, as fear is for fools and cowards. A valorous man boldly faces what the Norns decree. 5. Love, protect, reproduce, and advance your folk as natural instinct prohibits miscegenation and self-destruction. 6. Be honest, be disciplined, be productive, and loyal to friends as the Aryan spirit strives for excellence in all things. 7. Treasure your history, heritage, and racial identity as your ancestors have entrusted. It falls with you. It will rise with you. 8. Honor the memory of your kith and kin, especially those who have given their lives or freedom for the folk, as your race lives on through your blood and your will. 9. Respect the wisdom of your elders as every moment of your lives links the infinite past to the infinite future. 10. Honor your mate, provide for your children, and carry no quarrel with family to sleep time, as family is your purpose and fulfillment. 11. 
May your word to a kinsman be a bond of steel, as your truth is your dignity and strength of character. 12. Be cunning as a fox with enemies and nifflings, as their goal is your extinction. Their motives are always detrimental to your well-being and that of the folks. 13. Secure, defend, and cherish your oathal lands as nature's territorial imperative demands. 14. Live in harmony with nature and the folk, and compromise not with evil, as racial survival is your perpetual struggle. Resist and defy always that which you know to be wrong and detrimental to the welfare and advancement of our noble folk. And then there are nine... Well, and I don't know if I'm going to say this word right. I should have looked it up or had it pronounced me, but I think it's uh, Assyrian. Well, sort of Assyrian, Assyrian code of nine. So, the code of nine. One, the code is to honor. Honor yourself with truth and fairness. Your word is your bond. Give your word power by adhering to it. Honor your family and friends with reverence and respect. Honor your love and the way above all else. Honor is the mark of strength and nobility. Code two is to protect. Protect with savagery your blood and kin. Let no one or no thing violate your love or way. Let there always be inequity in defense. Always protect thrice as fiercely as one is attacked. Protection is the mark of a warrior spirit. Three, the code is to flourish. Prosperity and growth are key to the survival of the way, such as the mark of intelligence. Four, the code is knowledge. Knowledge is power. Seek ever to expand the mind. Never stagnate, for knowledge is a gift from the gods. Five, the code is change. Adapting and changing are important for growth and survival. That which cannot adapt or change is doomed to perish. Change is the mark of insight. Six, the code is fairness. Pay all debts. Pull your own weight. Always hear and consider all sides. Treat all others with equity and fairness. Expect the same. Seven, the code is balance. Remember the law of balance. All that which you do or wish for, good or ill, shall return to you one day. Strive for the good. 8. The code is control. Never lose control to anger or be baited by hostility. Never strike a woman unless your life hangs in the balance. Don't violate the weak or innocent. Never tolerate those who do. Control is the mark of a disciplined mind, a sign of the greatest of warriors. 9. The code is conflict. Those who follow the way must know the art of combat, weapons, and vengeance. War is part of the path. Always be prepared for hostility. It is a destiny woven into the fibers of our people. Keep body, mind, and training up at all times. Have no remorse in the savagery of conflict. Win, prevail, and survive. And uh, I think this was written in something like Hmm. 825 uh, in the Common Era, or in 1075 in the Runic Era, and I really can't tell you much about the Runic Era yet. I don't. I don't know. 
All right. I'm going to talk a little bit about, um, since it's December and we're coming upon Yule, um, and Yuletide starts uh, on the 20th of December and goes for 12 days, and I think that I may be doing, I think Bill asked me to do a show on Yule, so I think we can expect that probably, well, I don't know the date right now, but um, probably a Saturday right before, um, I think the 20th might be that Saturday. I want to talk a little bit about, um, according to Odinism, I wanted to tell you what the months are in the Aryan uh, nation. Oh, and I want to say, too, Wotan, W-O-T-A-N, it equates to the will of the Aryan nation. Will of the Aryan nation. In uh, Odinism, January is known as snow moon. February is known as Morning. March is known as Lenting. April is known as Austera. May is known as Merry Moon. June is Midyear or Fallow. July is Hay Moon. August is Harvest. September is Shedding. October is hunting. November is fog moon. December is yule moon or wolf moon. And with that, my friends, I think I'm going to end this show. And uh, I'm going to play a little music from Damn the Bard. The hills are hollow. I bid you adieu. Good night.
Every moss covered face tells the secrets of ancient lore. The torch standers guardian witnesses to the right, to nature's God of darkness and of light. And the hills they are hollow, home to the fade Some midsummer's eve, some. 